Welcome to the Wild and Free Podcast, Episode 33. I'm Ainsley Arment, and this week we're going to hear an inspiring story called Mornings Without Measure by Elsie Uticello and an interview with the founder of Brave Writer, Julie Bogart. So grab a cup of coffee and join us on the front porch. Let's get started. ago, I built a garden box in my backyard with the hopes of growing my very own fruits and vegetables. I planted herbs, corn, tomatoes, jalapenos, strawberries, varieties of lettuce, and anything else that would fit within a 4x6 plot that only got sun between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. It was my first foray into farming, and I loved every minute of it. At first, my efforts were bountiful. We enjoyed fresh guacamole throughout the summer, with everything except the avocados coming from our own garden. But then, the next year came around, and it was an entirely different situation. Apparently, gardens do not run on autopilot. And despite my desire, I simply didn't have time to maintain it. Still, I couldn't give up on the idea. So the next year, I planted seeds and watched as some plants made it and others died, as the neighborhood wildlife took their pick of my produce. I finally realized that if I was going to grow vegetables, I was going to have to put in the time and effort. There's no better metaphor for parenting than gardening. What we sow into our children's lives is that which we also reap. The good news is that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know that and are putting it into practice. In that light, I want to encourage you in a few ways. First, just because you don't see growth doesn't mean it's not happening. While I couldn't grow certain plants without tender care, others shot up when I least expected it. The most vibrant gardens have deep roots that take time to anchor the plants. Good growth is slow growth. Second, gardening is a natural process. We only need to trust our children, believe in them, and encourage them to grow in the ways they are naturally bent. Of course, we want our children to grow in knowledge, wisdom, and character, but we also want our children to grow in their passions, interests, and creativity. Finally, we grow our children with deliberate care, soaking up good things, doing hard things, enduring difficult seasons, taking risks, and digging in when times get tough. The beautiful thing about growing gardens and children is that we only need to do our part to see an abundant harvest. Every summer, there comes a point when the garden is overflowing and I'm simply trying to keep up with the fruit of my labor. It's both humbling and exhilarating. So friends, here's to creating the right conditions and raising lifelong learners who will never cease to grow on their own. Our dear friend Elsie Uticello is a monthly contributor to the Wild and Free content bundles. She recently told us a story about her morning rhythms around the kitchen table, and we're thrilled to share it with you here in two parts. It's called Mornings Without Measure. We've been gathering around this wood table for six years. It was lovingly made by the man who stole my heart. He gave me the table a few months before we said, I do. A few months after the wedding, we were pregnant with our first boy, and within five years, all four of our boys were seated around that table, where we now gather every morning to embrace a liturgy of habit that nourishes us down to the bone. 
I am not a morning person, and this ritual of starting each day building relationship with my children over truth, goodness, and beauty is a balm to my heart. The children set the table and put the kettle on. Dvorak plays and we look at Cassatt's work and we'll swing on birches in our minds for a bit while Mr. Frost's words fall like snowflakes around us. No lectures or long speeches or terms to memorize, just the pleasure of beautiful things, good food and each other. Beautiful music, poetry, art, Shakespeare and the like have become our habits. In the same way that we always share a large Sunday dinner or celebrate Noche Buena with my family, we always read and recite poetry. We remember to brush our teeth every day, and we never let a day go by without listening to a beautiful piece of music or looking at fine art. These habits have become family culture. It's small and simple when you think about it. A track of music, a picture, a poem, a cup of tea, a few pages from a book, and we leave the table with hearts and minds and tummies full. Yet the repetition of small and simple eventually builds the beautiful and complex. The early morning warble of little voices lifted in song to the heavens, the earnest prayers and petitions that follow, the stack of books upon the table, each one read in small increments over a long period of time, following us through a season or two or three. Worthy books to treasure and savor, books that are well-worn and familiar, books that mold beautiful childhoods and shape virtue-hungry men. Humble learners gather around this table to converse, contemplate, sing, fumble with the eternal and seek wisdom. The smallest of these come to gobble meals, chirp and squeak and grab for attention, sit upon laps and be held. These are the elements of habit that bind us as a family and shape us as individuals. Little drops of water, little grains of sand, make the mighty ocean and the beauteous land. Thus the little minutes, humble though they be, make the mighty ages of eternity. By Ebenezer Brewer I met the first stanza of this sweet nursery rhyme through Cindy Rollins, author of Mere Motherhood, who began writing about her family's use of morning time as a way to simplify life. In her writings, she urges us, If you have something that you want your children to assimilate, like poetry or scripture or music or Shakespeare, forget the grand schemes. Start giving that thing one or two minutes of your time daily and watch the years roll by. We'll be back with part two of Mornings Without Measure in just a moment. Calling all adventurous families. We're gathering at Trail West Lodge in Buena Vista, Colorado, this August 24th through 26th for Wild and Free Family Camp. Join 50 other families for an unforgettable weekend in the breathtaking Rocky Mountains. This is a perfect opportunity to build an even tighter bond with your kids and get to know other amazing families in the wild and free community. We'll test our limits on the ropes course, ride horses along the front range, come together for family roundups, and enjoy chuck wagon meals in the Aspen Grove. The best part is that your family will get its own private suite in the main lodge. We only have a few spots left and we have one with your name on it. We even have monthly payment plans available. To learn more and secure your spot, go to bewildandfree.org slash familycamp. When we first began morning time, I didn't have a name for it. 
what I had was three kids in diapers, sleep deprivation, and a raging case of post-traumatic stress disorder. Our very first morning time lasted five minutes. It consisted of myself, two small boys strapped into high chairs, and one baby in a sling. I set out a small vase of flowers from the garden and lit a candle, placed chopped fruit on the table trays, and started nursing the baby. I cracked open a random book selected three minutes prior and began to read aloud. It was over in five minutes. Six, seven years later, it is an entirely different experience, but it is very much rooted in the days of diaper-clad toddlers and squalling infants. Those days were of monumental importance because they were both difficult and mundane. They taught me early on to pace myself. Building up our morning time has been the work of thousands of days stretched in the most minuscule daily increments, slowly pooling together into something truly life-giving and refreshing. I am treasuring these mornings without measure. No grades, no tests, no rubrics. It's not about performance or learning tricks or amassing knowledge to impress others. Thankfully, there is no possible way to teach or present every bit of information out there. This blatant truth reminds me that my role as mother and teacher is not about data input. My children are not products, they are souls. I don't strive to present information, I seek to nurture souls. Morning time is really a quiet, steady shaping of character and affections. We gather around the table and break bread. We soak up goodness, truth, and beauty. We dwell in the lovely through the simple acts of mundane life. We read a Shakespeare play and gaze upon a tender Da Vinci painting. We listen to Bach and imagine ourselves somewhere else entirely. We read Aesop's fables and recite the poems whose words are woven into the chambers of our hearts. We meditate on a passage of scripture together. We talk about current issues. We talk about honor and respect and the importance of absolute truth. This isn't a list of accomplishments or a list of boxes to be checked. We enjoy these things together as a family. It is not something we are doing, it's who we are and who we are becoming. I love watching their hearts incline towards worthy things. Day by day, year after year, they are taking the shape of what we have slowly poured in. Morning time is so simple on its own, but when the days are gathered, those 6,500 or so fleeting days of childhood have the strength of swift waters carving through solid rock. On any given day, I am adding a few more grains of sand, a few more drops of water, seeing no instant alterations, but knowing in my heart that the landscape is indeed changing. Well, we have a special conversation to share with you today. Jennifer Pepito recently sat down with the founder of Brave Writer, Julie Bogart, to talk about inspiring a love of writing in our children. Let's listen in. I'm 
I'm so excited to talk to you because a couple of years ago, we podcasted for the Wild and Free Bundles, and you said something which really revolutionized my homeschool. What you said was, children do not need grammar every single year of elementary school. I think to summarize, you kind of said that they only need it a few times. And it's been such a relief to me because with my older kids, I was doing rod and staff grammar, which is very intense. But I feel like they came out from that experience not actually being that great. I mean, my kids have all gotten great college scores and they're good writers, but there's some areas where their grammar actually was a little wonky considering how much grammar they've done. I I feel like what you do focus on is more writing, more literature. So I want to talk about what you, what are your recommendations really for language arts with young children, especially elementary school age children? Great question. And I'm so glad that our conversation provided you with some relief. I think there's a big misconception about the role of grammar in writing. Uh, Writing is an expression of a self, and it comes from the fluent verbal life of a person. And a person who learns their native language as a baby, toddler, into the early years of childhood is not consulting a rule book in order to create sentences. They are developing an ear for language. Uh, The brain we know is hardwired to learn to speak, and through imitation and gentle correction and participation in human life, we become fluent in our native tongue. We learn how to form sentences then by listening to each other and by imitating. And then along comes school, and somebody says, well, you know, in certain regions of the country, people actually misuse language. So like in Cincinnati, I have friends who literally say, she don't go to the store on Saturday, she go on Sunday. (laughs) And you think to yourself, okay, well, maybe grammar instruction is going to correct that before a child goes to write. But the truth of the matter is, children are writing by ear, and just teaching them rules doesn't change how they naturally express themselves. What helps them to adapt is to have a wide variety, a wide diet of language through literature and conversations with adults. And you can literally just teach to regionalisms if there are differences between the way we speak orally and the way we write. So typically what I recommend is this. If you want your children to know the science of grammar, you know, nouns, verbs, adjectives, and we all do at some point, first of all, language is beautiful. Secondly, it's like having shorthand for language. We want to just laser focus three times in a child's life. So I typically say one year in elementary school, grab a, you know, language arts program that includes some instruction on the parts of speech. And we do that in Brave Writer. Um, And then a year in junior high, when you actually pick a grammar program, like Winston Grammar is what I used, but Daily Grams, Easy easy Grammar, something like that, that teaches the structure of sentences. And then finally in high school, teach a foreign language. Because when you learn a foreign language, you have to consult the rules. You can't go by your ear. And when you start to use the rules in a foreign language, here's the cool thing. It backdates to English. Suddenly, the words nouns and past tense have a whole new meaning to you because you're so dependent on them for making sentences in this new language. So during the early years, the best thing you can do for grammar is read a lot, watch a lot of TV, go to movies, talk to a wide range of people, and start to become fluent in all the different means of self-expression and what it sounds like funneled through a variety of voices. 
Oh, I love that. And it's interesting that you mentioned learning a foreign language because I don't think I actually knew what a Garand was until I started studying Spanish. Yes. And it's so interesting that in a sense, a lot of grammar makes more sense to us when we're applying it to a foreign language because in our own language, we speak it. Sometimes I feel like, I mean, who uses a subject without a verb. Do you know what I mean? We we all know how to compose a sentence. We know it. At a certain and point. Yes, and we know it intuitively. Your child can't tell you why the words go in that order. They just know that they do because they've heard it so many times and they learned it during the time when the plasticity of the brain was forming itself around the native language. So it's very challenging to say to a child, okay, we're going to sit down now and use all of these abstractions in order to learn how to speak. We're not going to do that. We don't take the subject-verb agreement and decide that's how we'll make a sentence. So when we take abstraction, when a child's brain isn't even ready for it, they're seven, they're eight, they're 10, and their brain hasn't even gone through that puberty chemical wash that helps them understand abstraction and complexity. And now we're requiring them to regurgitate, this is an adjective and this is an adverb. They're not making meaningful use of it. So it doesn't stick. It's like Teflon. And that's the reason public schools teach grammar every year. You know why? No one retains it. They, have to, right. <laughs> they don't retain it. Right. So they just think Plus if they have to keep 30 kids sitting quietly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So in my early years of homeschooling, I would do, you know, a reading comprehension workbook and a grammar workbook and some copy work and some handwriting and I'd read aloud. And then finally, we might have some time to draw or write our own compositions or our own narrations. And then I listened to you and learned from a few other people, even Charlotte Mason. And now we mostly do reading aloud and then narrating what we read or copying a passage of what we read. And then once a week we do a grammar lesson. Once a week we do a, like a write more of a formal writing lesson. So what would you say on like a weekly schedule for an elementary student, how much grammar, how much writing, how many hours or minutes even? Cause I think sometimes homeschoolers get so bogged down with all these different workbooks and curriculum and then get really, really burnt out or feel like they need to call in, you know, they need to enroll their kids in a charter school or something just so they can get oversight to get through all these workbooks. And then they end up with even more work. Yeah. That's, to me, that style of learning is the reason we opted out of the school system. <laughs> like, why just reproduce school at home? You have such an opportunity at home to live a completely different life. So let me just give you an example of how one practice worked in my family that might be fun to try this week with your kids. So imagine you want your kids to learn what is a preposition. You know, you've decided, okay, this is the year I'm going to introduce parts of speech and it's kind of abstract and they don't really get it. Would the best way be to teach a preposition to have a bunch of random, unconnected sentences on a sheet of paper and you give a child a pencil and say, okay, here's the list of prepositions in a box at the top of the page. Now I want you to read these sentences and match them, you know, circle them. How does that help a child get a sense of the function or the utility of a preposition? They're literally just using their eyes as the only tool. They're looking at words and they're seeing if they match and they're finding them. It's like going on a scavenger hunt for words. In my family, when it was time to teach prepositions, all I could think was prepositions are about position. That's literally built into the word. It's a position. 
How can I help my kids experience what a preposition does? So here's what I did. I got my kids, I lined them up, I gave them each a chair. And then we looked at the chair and I would say, up, and they'd get up on the chair. Under, and they'd climb down and get under the chair. Beside, and we just started going through the prepositions. It became humorous. We're like, well, what? how do you represent my relationship to a chair when I use of? And you start to actually think about the meaning behind the word rather than just chugging through a workbook page and circling. Do you see the difference? So right. what we want to do absolutely. is, yes, is stop thinking about getting through and actually figure out meaning. If your children get it, you don't have to reteach it. If your children get it, you don't have to reteach it. So that's the goal. Our goal is to make that meaningful connection so that they own it. It becomes their own possession. It's not just, oh, good, we checked off the workbook page. I did language arts. Yeah. And I think sometimes we do those workbook pages because we feel like we need to have something that proves we did school. Like I am a firm believer in the importance of play in early childhood, but I see so many moms giving their preschoolers a workbook because they feel like, okay, this will prove we did school. Whereas playing a game with, with, you know, putting a stuffed animal on a chair, under a chair, or putting your own body on a chair, under a chair, there's nothing I can do to prove, nothing I can show. So what would you say about the the place of written work for really young kids? I'm talking even under six. Well, I, I think it's interesting for kids who want to do it. So I had a daughter who was four. She was the youngest of all five kids, and she saw everyone else using pencils. And so even though she didn't read until she was nearly 10, she was writing for six years. And people always say to me, how is that possible? I say, well, ask her. The thoughts were happening in her head and her pencil was moving. That's what writing is. <laughs> there wasn't any way for me to read her writing, but she absolutely was writing. But what I would say in general is that the paper push is a legacy of what I call the ghost of public school past. So any of us who were in school have this ghost. She sits on your left shoulder. She whispers in your left ear. She has a red pen. Her name is Mrs. Cox. She wears glasses. And she is saying to you, the other kids in school are filling out paperwork. So you must not be doing school with your child if you're not filling out paperwork. Shame on you. And then you run over and you satisfy this you know, critique of Mrs. Cox, the ghost of public school past, by filling out papers. The faster you shed the feeling that you owe the school something they recognize, the faster your homeschool will grow. Obviously, today, we have a million ways to record education and practice. First of all, most of the Instagram accounts of wild and free parents that I've seen are a fabulous record of learning in action. They're, it's already absolutely, visual. Absolutely. But you could be recording. You could write a monthly narrative. That's something we recommend in my coaching community, the Homeschool Alliance. You take one day a month, and you literally just write down exactly what happened during that full day from sunup to sundown including the drive to the dentist where you started talking about a billboard, including the time your three-year-old in the bathtub retold the three little pig story. These are all part of your homeschool. There is no school time and home time. It's all one thing when you home educate. So to circle back to your comment about language arts, language arts never stops. There is no minute quantity that you're doing it and then not doing it because if you are related to your kids, you're talking with them. You're reading the cereal box. You're 
watching a television show and talking about it. You're having dinner conversation. You're reading them a book. You're writing some of it down. You're keeping a calendar and pointing to it and saying, well, this is when the dentist is. Language arts is inescapable in a family. It's happening all the time. We just don't always value it. We don't always write it down. Now, if you want to be intentional about instruction, where you want them to learn things that maybe aren't coming up just in a conversation, then my suggestion is just what you said. Find ways to engage the whole person. Don't assume that because you filled out a page in a workbook, you've got it done. If we only measure learning by how many pages we complete, we won't ever know whether our kids actually learned it. Learning has to become your own possession. It's it's when you know it well enough that it pops out of your mouth because, oops, there it was. <laughs> That's learned, right. you know, not, oh, good, I finished that page, but I can't remember three years later what a noun is. So true. And I love what you said about even the the idea of keeping a journal because I think sometimes that's the whole problem is that we're looking for ways to prove that we actually did school with our kids. And so we undervalue things like reading aloud to them or doing a craft with them or talking to them about something. And we overvalue written work. And and not all kids are ready to do written work, you know, right off in preschool, for instance. Absolutely not. In fact, a lot of kids aren't ready for written work until they're about 10 or 11, to be truthful. Because here's the thing, just as a little, you know, lesson on language. By the time most kids are five, they're absolutely fluent in their native tongue, whether it's Mandarin, Chinese, or English. But to learn the skills to write takes 10 years. And they don't start working on writing until they're already fluent in speech. So what does that mean? It means that the verbal fluency, their competence with language, their extensive vocabulary, their ability to use complex sentence structure has far outpaced their ability to transcribe it with their own hands. They don't know how to read fluently yet when they start. They aren't perfect spellers. Punctuation is completely irrelevant to young writers. They haven't learned punctuation literacy. And so here they have this huge inner life waiting to erupt and be shared with the world. And then schools say, well, we don't want any of that until you can handwrite it accurately yourself. And so what happens is you've got this big imagination, all these facts, all this interesting stuff to share, but you're not capable of writing it down yourself. So you have two choices. You can either write it and not care about spelling, punctuation, handwriting, because it's really hard to do all those things accurately and give full attention to your thought life. Or you can dumb down the content to match your mechanics, which is what most kids in school have to do. And so what you end up with is dull, lifeless writing, records of things nobody will ever care to read about for the rest of time, (laughs) and the association of writing being boring. But nobody's mind life is boring. So what I recommend early in the life of a child is that you jot down that active vocabulary, their verbal speech for them, even when they aren't expecting it. Catch them in the act. They'll be just chatting away at you about Super Mario, and you just grab that envelope and start jotting down their exact words. They'll ask you what you're doing. You can just say, this is so good. I don't want to forget it, so I'm writing it down. And then that night at dinner, pull that little piece of paper out and say to the whole family, you know, Joni was telling me all about Super Mario and it was so good and I didn't want to forget it. So I wrote it down. I just want to read it to you now and read it back. 
and then toss it in the library basket and read it again next week to your child. Oh, look at what Joni wrote. I want to read it again. Start to help your kids realize that it's their inner life that we want to see on that paper and work on the mechanics using somebody else's writing. Laura Ingalls Wilder, E.B. White, you know, somebody else who's already written, have them copy, have them learn how to do dictation, have them read. These are the ways we work separately on the writing voice and the mechanics. And then we bring those yeah, together. I love, I love, there's a few different things that I love about what you said. For one thing, you know, I think that moms often start homeschooling when they also have babies and toddlers. And how much more doable would homeschooling be if it was mostly reading books and talking with your kids together as opposed to sitting there trying to help a too young child write? How that would revolutionize the lives of young families would be amazing. And then I love the honor, you know, the honor that it gives a child when you put aside whatever you're doing to listen to them and hear what they're saying and value what they're saying. That's Truly. just so beautiful. Instead of always expect, you know, instead of making school always about regurgitating your own information or someone else's information. Correct. Or even just the nature of it always being on command. You know, I have parents who say, I asked my child to tell me what he's thinking and he won't. Well, that's because they're suspicious of you. <laughs> they know right in that moment you're trying to hijack what is natural for them and turn it into a lesson. Nobody likes that feeling. And yet, if when the middle of stir-frying dinner, your child walks in and is immediately excited to tell you about a blue jay that was eating at the bird feeder, if you turn the stove off and turn your attention to your child and start jotting that down, what you're saying is, the life that lives inside of you is what I want to see on paper. And there is a point at which they know that so well, they will start doing that. But when we come from the other perspective, where we hand them a blank page and they hand back a blank stare, and then we shame them and say, you have so much to say. Why can't you say it? I just need three sentences. You know, They lock down. They double down because they know their mechanics and their speech are not synced up yet. They couldn't tell you that, but that's what they feel inside. And the risk feels too high. The risk reward ratio is all out of whack. They're expecting to be critiqued instead of loved and valued. But if you surprise them by valuing them, they're more willing to take risks at the times when you ask for them because they know that you actually value the, the person that they are. Julie has one more principle to share with us, but before she does, I'd like to tell you about something exciting happening in the wild and free community. Before we had groups, before we had conferences, before we even had an Instagram account, Wild and Free began curating resources for monthly content bundles that would inspire, equip, and encourage homeschool mamas. In the early days, these bundles started with just a few resources, but now they're overflowing with homeschooling goodness. It's like getting access to an online conference every single month. When you become a monthly subscriber to Wild and Free, you not only get access to each new bundle, but also the previous month's bundle, a monthly magazine in your mailbox, all of our conference talks, and a library of homeschooling resources. Plus, you also get discounts on past bundles and our conferences. We're coming up on our fourth year of Wild and Free content bundles, and they are truly the heart and soul of this community. It's how Wild and Free Mamas share their hearts and connect with each other, and how we continue to fuel this beautiful homeschool community. To get a free bundle and learn more, go to bewildandfree.org bundles. Now, back to Julie Bogart. 
you talked about how Instagram can be such a great record, really, of all that we are accomplishing in our school. And I love how Instagram also motivates us to clean up our house. But (laughs) how about the damage sometimes it does to communications? Like I can have this issue with having my kids talk to me and I am paying attention to something else besides them. How do we make sure that we, you know, looking at my phone while my kids are trying to talk to me? Yeah, don't do that. (laughs) but I totally understand that. And I think, I think one of the things that your generation is having to grapple with much more than I did in the early days of homeschooling is this massive sort of pottery barn level house look. I didn't know what the insides of my friends' homeschool houses looked like. I never saw them. You know, the people, we didn't have internet when I started homeschooling. So I was in my own little bubble with my local neighbors. I was lucky. I had four friends on my street who all homeschooled. So I saw their houses, but I wasn't inundated every day with like a pristine image or the perfect look. I think we help each other when we tell the truth about our families, when we show the truth. And I think our kids feel the most valued when we treat them not as, you know, a project to share with the world, but as something we're proud of. So I noticed the difference, you know, you'll see Instagram photos where kids are really asking their parents, can you show this to people? Because they know their parents are excited about them. That's very different than, you know, trying to turn them into a lesson for other people. Uh, And I, you know, I guarded my kids some, even when the internet started, I was very careful not to use them in my business, not to put them online a lot, only because I wasn't sure how they'd feel about it later. And uh, so I share them more now (laughs) than ever. But I I, I love looking at Instagram. And I think if you saw it as a record, um, I'll give you one last idea. This worked very well for me. I started a private blog for myself uh, when blogging was first really huge. And I made it private. No one else could see it but me. But that's where I kept my record so that I could include photographs. And then I went back at the end of the year before my year-end narrative with my certified teacher in Ohio, and I would use that to show the record of our learning journey over the course of a year. So that's another way. If you're the kind of person who loves photography and loves writing things down, and you don't want it to turn into some kind of showing off or showcase, you can do it privately. You can set up a private blog and keep that for yourself. Uh, But mostly my thought was just this you're already more conscious of keeping a record because of the internet than we even were when we didn't have it. So see it as a resource and as an asset. Don't feel like it's necessarily a bad thing, but I do always recommend eye contact when your kids are talking to you. (laughs) So just flip the phone over and look at them. That's, That's exactly what, you know, it's something that's so on my heart. I think it's so important for attachment for our kids and for and feeling valued that we actually look at them and, and we just you know, can't listen well while we're, we can't no, multitask. No. And I'll, I'll finish with this because it's a little story on myself. So when my kids were little, my husband would say, when my kids would come up and start talking to me and I'm busy on my com- you know computer, working, teaching, writing, and they would ask a question, mom, mom, mom. And finally, my husband would say, you have to double click on her. She's in sleep mode. 
You know, that's what happens. It's like you learn to tune them out because you're used to chaos and now you're trying to work or you're trying to read or you're trying to, you know, do something online. And so we're really good at tuning out the TV, the kids, the chatter. So what we taught my kids is that they would put their hand on my shoulder and then I would put my hand on their hand to let them know, okay, I know you're there. I would finish what I was doing and then I would turn to them. Now that worked pretty well. So give them a way to access you when you've tuned them out is good too. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. And Julie, I could talk to you all day. There's so many, even in just our little short time, so many thoughts that you've given me about that I can apply right away to my own homeschool. And I know that the rest of the Wild and Free community is going to appreciate hearing from you too. Thank you for welcoming me into your community. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, Julie. You've inspired all of us to slow down, take the pressure off ourselves, and help our kids develop a love for learning. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but join us again next week for the Wild and Free podcast.